God, we thank you this morning that as we gather and study your word again, that we would learn afresh that these are words of your covenant, and you have spoken to draw us into a relationship with you. We thank you that all your words are sure, that your promises will come to pass. Help us to follow after you this morning and this week according to the words that you have written. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, uh, we are gathered to try to tackle this question, how did we get our Bible? Over the last few weeks, uh, we have considered biblical and theological answers to this question. What does the Bible say about itself? And we've talked about the origin of Scripture, and that is that Scripture is God-breathed. It is, it is inspired by God. And then because of that, we talked about the qualities or the nature of Scripture. Uh, since Scripture is God-breathed, it is truthful, or sometimes we would say inerrant, and it is trustworthy. That is, uh, sometimes we refer to that as infallible. And we've also clarified that these qualities apply in an absolute sense to what was originally written, and then in a relative sense to all the copies and translations of those writings. And finally, we briefly discussed preservation from a, a theological perspective, specifically that God has providentially preserved his word through his people and their commitment to keep God's word primary and central to their spiritual life. So today, we're, we're transitioning in the class. We're kind of opening a new chapter, if you will, uh, as we begin to look at how we got the Bible from biblical history. So the stories of the Bible, the stories in the Bible, tell us a story about how the Bible came to be. So in the coming weeks, we're going to trace this thread in the biblical narrative to see how we got the Bible from the, the unfolding story of the Bible and biblical history. Okay? So like with any good story, uh, there are characters, right? And so we're going we're gonna to preface the story by just introducing some of the characters that we're going to meet along the way. And uh, this is just in, in broad strokes. We're not going to, we don't have time in the class uh, to go into deep detail on every single biblical author and every single character, but these are some of the characters um, that we'll meet along the way. So first, we're going to meet authors, of course. And we've already talked about authors from a, a biblical and theological perspective, and obviously, these are some of the main characters. So you have uh, in, in your handout a reference to this and projected on the screen, Hebrews 1.1 that summarizes this well, that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, and then it, it goes on. So, you know, the, that verse and, and also 2 Peter 1.21 uh, tell us that God has spoken, and he's not just spoken audibly, uh, but he has spoken through the writings of scripture. He's chosen to have his words recorded in writing for us. Usually those authors are uh, prophets or spiritual leaders of Israel, and we're going to meet many of them along the way. But just as often, uh, we're going to run into a question mark. Uh, it is not uncommon that we don't know for sure who the biblical authors were. And of, of course, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, ancient writings don't have our modern practice, right? If you, if you look at a modern book, the author's name is on the front, and the author's name is on the spine, and the author's name is on the back, and you open it up, and the author's name is there. Well, 
ancient writings uh, didn't work like that. Um, and uh, we also don't need to know exactly who wrote uh, scripture in order for it to be authentically from God. <clears throat> the author is not irrelevant, uh, but the author is not the deciding factor in the authenticity and authority of scripture. So, you know, in the, in the Bible story, in the, in the book of Numbers, we know God has spoken through, uh, through the bad guys, right? Somebody uh, uh, like, uh, I think his name is Balaam, and through a donkey. You know, so God can speak in a lot of different ways through a lot of different people. Um, and so he can speak through anonymous human authors. We also uh, will run into in the story uh, what we might call co-authors. So there are instances where the main author had someone help them with the composition of scripture, right? So Jeremiah is one such character. We know that Jeremiah had help recording what he wrote. Jeremiah 36.4 says, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. So uh, Baruch helped Jeremiah to record what was written down. And then uh, Paul also, uh, some think that maybe Paul had someone to help him write scripture. Oftentimes, Paul will introduce his letters by saying that this is from Paul and somebody else. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 1.1 uh, 1 .1 starts like that. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul references that uh, he has kind of signed the end of his letter with his own hand. And so some think that he's, he's uh, doing that because he has somebody who's recording the letter for him, and then he signs the end of it. And we're not sure about that, but it's possible. We have other instances where it seems really clear uh, that someone wrote uh, something like an, an inspired appendix or commentary on the main writing of scripture. Uh, we'll see that this morning when we look closer at Deuteronomy. Another set of characters that we'll meet are scribes or copyists, and sometimes these, these scribes or people who are copying scripture uh, have something of a professional status. Maybe they're, they're training and they have a, a special community that's devoted to copying scripture. So in 1 Chronicles 2.55, there's a long list of of people and families in Israel. And in this particular verse, we see about a, a family of scribes which dwelt at Jabez, and then those tribes are listed out. And so these people are committed to copying and uh, carrying on the, transmitting the scripture that they have. And then also in Deuteronomy 17, uh, we see the instruction that the king, when he becomes king, one of his first tasks is to write a copy of the law in a book. And so even though the king is not what we would describe maybe as a professional scribe, they were to be well acquainted with the scripture. They were to know the law. Um, this is one of the reason that, reasons that uh, we believe Proverbs was written. Proverbs seems to be Solomon meditating on the law and then giving instruction to his sons about the law. So the king was to be well acquainted with scripture, and you can see in this verse uh, that it's the law of the book which is before the priests and the Levites. So it's very likely that as the king's doing this, he has the priests helping him make sure that he's doing things well, that he understands what he's doing. 
And so we have scribes and, and people who are copying scripture. But sometimes uh, the scribes who are copying scripture uh, were, were not professionals or uh, they were sometimes under duress, right? So if the king is copying scripture, uh, he's probably doing that in his palace, right? He's probably got Levites who are helping him. But we know that there were times when scripture was copied under uh, circumstances of intense persecution and pressure. I don't know if I've got, yeah, I don't have this copied out for you. But Jeremiah 36 tells this story. I referenced Jeremiah 36 earlier. It talks about Baruch copying out scriptures. And one of the reasons that Baruch was doing that is because Jeremiah was hated by the king. Jeremiah is delivering this message to Israel and to their leaders that Babylon is going to win. Babylon is going to carry them off into captivity. Well, and the king didn't like that. Jeremiah 36 uh, tells the story of Jeremiah delivering this hard word to King Jehoiakim. And in Jeremiah 36, verse 21, the story goes, So the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. So you see what's happened here is that God has given a word to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah has had Baruch write it down, and it's been delivered to the king. And while it's being read to the king, the king hates this word. And he's literally, he's cutting up the scroll as it's being read, and he's throwing it into the fire. Uh, as we go through biblical history and, and then on into church history, this isn't the last time that scripture is going to be burned. Um, God's word uh, rubs people the wrong way. God's ways are not our ways, and sometimes his words are hard to receive. And so for the king here, his response to that hard word is, well, I'm just going to burn it. I don't like it. So he cut it up and burned the roll. But then the story continues. Verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll, and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned. So, you know, in this circumstance, when that roll was delivered to Jehoiakim, uh, Jeremiah's friend said, You need to go hide. Uh, and so Jeremiah had gone into hiding, and God continued to speak and work through Jeremiah. But there's not a, a nice, comfortable setting for them to be doing this in. Uh, they're under immense pressure, and they're uh, on the run, as it were, while they're copying out Scripture. And God still worked uh, through those circumstances to preserve his word. So the, the story of the preservation of text is a dramatic one, where sometimes the original texts were broken, as we talked about last week, uh, when Moses broke the tablets, and sometimes those texts were burned, as with Jeremiah. And, of course, the early church, just think about the history of the early church. Uh, that was not a story of acceptance and respect in society. Christians were not well regarded. Christians were treated with contempt. They were often on the run, hiding, being killed, destroyed. And as we'll see, even into the third century uh, AD, after uh, Jesus uh, had ascended, there were Roman emperors who were ordering Christians and their texts to be burned. 
Uh, and so this created hard circumstances under which scripture was copied. They didn't have nice facilities in which to, to copy and to store their writings. So, uh, so this is another one of the characters that we'll come across, so these scribes and these copyists who were copying scripture. And sometimes they were doing it in a professional, uh, well-organized setting, but sometimes they were uh, under immense pressure and on the run. Uh, we also will come across um, collectors uh, or compilers, that should say compilers, not copyists. Um, some of our biblical books are, are very interesting, and, and I'm not sure how much we'll get into this. It'll be next week when we get to it. Um, but some of these books are compilations of things that are written by various people, right? So the Psalms and the Proverbs are the most obvious instances of this. You can think of the Psalms. Uh, we know that many of the Psalms were written by David. One Psalm was written by Moses. Uh, many were written by the sons of Korah. And many Psalms are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them, but they're all gathered together and collected together uh, in one book. And then, of course, the Proverbs are another very interesting case where we have uh, a collection of sayings and writings from different authors. Of course, many of the Proverbs are, are written or collected by Solomon. But then we have a couple instances towards the end where Proverbs 30, verse 1, says that these are the words of Agur, the son of Jaka. And we don't know a lot about Agur. Uh, famous Psalm, or Proverb 30, Proverbs 31 uh, is the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about him or his mother, uh, but these writings were collected together uh, and uh, were part of scripture. And so uh, this is another uh, instance that we have is that some of these writings were collected and put together into one book. And uh, then finally, we have translators. Uh, the main way that we see translators and translations showing up in Scripture is when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. So in the majority of cases, the New Testament authors seem to be quoting uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that's called the Septuagint. And we'll talk more about uh, this translation in particular when we get to the New Testament, but it's just worth mentioning now that translators are a part of the story even within the Bible itself uh, before we move on into, into church history. So all this by way of just kind of uh, introducing you to the characters that we're going to see along the way. Um, so I, I'm going to pause here before we start the story back at the beginning, uh, just to see if, do you, if you have any questions about these characters. Uh, any questions so far? All right. Let's keep going then into the, the story of the Bible starting with Moses. So, from the beginning, God spoke. Our God is a speaking God. Um, and this is an immensely encouraging fact that we don't have to try to figure God out. God has revealed himself and made himself known to us. He communicates with us. He wants us to know him. But God just doesn't just communicate by speaking. God has communicated with us by writing. Uh, we mentioned last week that God himself seems to be the first one to have directly written down his own words. So Exodus 31 verse 18 says, and he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tablets of testimony, tables of stone, 
written with the finger of God. So the, the first edition uh, was pr produced by God himself. Um, and then as we talked about last week, that first edition uh, was then destroyed. Uh, Moses broke those tablets to demonstrate to the people how serious their violation of God's word was. But then a copy was made. Exodus 34, verse 1 says, that The Lord said to Moses, Hew thee two tablets of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first table which thou breakest. So God not only speaks, but he also writes. And here it seems that God somehow wrote down the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, but, but most commonly, God uses human authors to write and to record his words. And Moses appears to be the first. So why did Moses write uh, the law? Why did God want Moses to write these things down? There are a lot of good answers to that question. One reason that God told Moses specifically to write down uh, his words was to record God's mighty acts. He wanted Israel's history recorded, the history of what God had done to save his people. I can't remember what I have projected for you. Oh, I do have this projected. Um, Exodus 17, 14 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the, put out the remembrance of Amalek, from under heaven. So Israel, in this context, they've just fought a war against the Amalekites. They've defeated them, and God tells Moses to record these events so that they would be remembered. And Moses also records the words of God's covenant with his people. So he records history, but also the words of covenant with God's people. So in Exodus 24, God calls Moses to himself and then Moses returns to the people, and it says in verses 3 and 4, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And then just a few verses later in verse 7, it says, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. So, so in the context of Israel's story, I mean, this is an amazing moment, right? They've just been delivered out of Egypt. They've crossed through the Red Sea. They've come to Mount Sinai. God shows up in an amazing, powerful way, and everybody's terrified. And they all say that they want Moses to go talk with God on their behalf. And so that's what Moses does. Moses is, a, is something of a mediator. He goes to God. God delivers his words of the covenant to Moses. And then Moses delivers them to the people. And one of the ways that Moses delivers it is that he writes it down so that they know what God has said to them, so that they know how they can have a relationship with God. So Moses is recording history, what God has done for his people. And then he records the covenant words of God, how they can have a relationship with him. So it's, it's God's acts and then something of an interpretation of those acts. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, what did Moses write? Well, we, we generally understand that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes these five books are called the Torah, 
which means law or instruction. Um, and so the Jews today in the Hebrew Bible would still refer to those first five books as the Torah. Sometimes uh, these books have been called the Pentateuch. Uh, that uh, just comes from two Greek words. Penta means five and uh, tukos means container or scrolls. So the, the five scrolls. Uh, so, again, just to take a step back, you know, when Moses wrote this down, um, he wasn't writing uh, in a book like this, right? And so these, these five books would not have been bound together. Uh, they would have been separate scrolls. Uh, one of the neat things that you can see at the Museum of the Bible, they have collections of scrolls. They have the, the Hebrew Bible uh, does not, you know, it's not copied in a book like this. Uh, they have racks of scrolls where the individual books are uh, collected and sometimes smaller books are collected in bundles. So Moses wrote these uh, these first five books. In addition to what we've already seen, you know, again, the, the text itself tells us Moses wrote these things down. But then the rest of the Bible recognizes Moses as the author of these books, right? So again, we're just taking scripture on its own terms. So an example of this is in 2 Kings 14, 6. It says, but the children of the murderers he slew not according unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses wherein the Lord commanded saying the fathers shall not be put to death for the children nor the children be put to death for the fathers but every man shall be put to death for his own sin so that's that's quoting Deuteronomy 24 6 and it's attributing those words to Moses that Moses wrote that down and while we're at it, we can see that it also recognizes that God has commanded these things. So we see, again, this dual authorship. God spoke through Moses. And then when we get to the New Testament, uh, we see something similar. You know, Jesus and the apostles, they recognize that Moses wrote these first five books. So Jesus says in Mark 12, 26, when he's, you know, arguing with some of the religious leaders of his day, he appeals to uh, previously written scripture. And he says, in Mark 12, 26, as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he's, he's quoting Exodus 3, verse 6, saying Moses wrote that. And there are many more examples uh, where Moses is identified as uh, the author of these first five books. And I've, in the handout at the bottom of the back page there, I've provided a, a link to an article. You can't click on that link, obviously. You'd have to type it in. Um, but there's a very good article on Answers in Genesis about uh, the mosaic authorship of those first five books. But that's not all that Moses wrote. Moses wrote something else. I mentioned it earlier. What else did Moses write? A psalm. Does anybody know which one? Psalm 90. That's right. Uh, Moses wrote Psalm 90. There's a superscription, a little heading at the top of the psalm that says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Uh, and so we also, you know, that's a very interesting one to think about because that psalm is collected for us with the psalms. Um, but somehow, you know, that was, that was preserved along the way and then put in the psalms in the place that it was located. While affirming uh, that Moses is the author of the, the Torah, those first five books, there's still some interesting questions. Um, and we can't necessarily answer all these questions with 100% uh, certainty, but there's some interesting questions that arise. Like, how did Moses get some of his information? Obviously, there's a lot of it that Moses was there for, right? So when Moses talks about the plagues that hit Egypt, I mean, he was there. We know how he got that information. And there are a lot of words that he said that God gave to him. But 
there are some things that he wrote about that were hundreds and thousands of years before Moses came on the scene. So how did he get that information uh, that is recorded in Genesis? Well, we know that ancient cultures and even many cultures today across the world have strong oral traditions. Uh, so stories and virtues are passed down from one generation to the next, and memory and story persist strongly in these communities. So it's, it's possible, if not likely, that Moses drew information uh, from his knowledge of that oral tradition uh, of God's people. But at least once, and maybe multiple times, um, Moses identifies written resources that he used. Uh, so we find an example of this in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, verse 14, it says, Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon. Well, what is the book of the wars of the Lord? We don't know for sure. We, we don't know uh, what that is. We don't know if Moses wrote that or if somebody else wrote that. But he, he references this other book uh, where he pulls a quote, an apparent quote, out of that book. Uh, we don't have a copy of that book. Uh, there's not one of these lying around somewhere. Uh, but he seems to be drawing information from that. This may also be happening in Genesis. Uh, we can't say, again, with 100% certainty, but in Genesis, uh, there are a few times where it references a book. Um, and so one of those instances is in Gen Genesis 5.1. Genesis 5 is uh, a long genealogy, and it begins in verse 1 saying, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So we don't know if, if he's using that phrase, saying that like, there, there was another book, maybe a recording, a genealogy that he was pulling from, or maybe he's just referencing you know, what follows is, is, a, is a book, a story about uh, the generations of Adam. We're not 100% sure. But he seems to be referencing, um, at least in numbers, another, another book that he's pulling some of that information from. Uh, it also seems, in the, especially at the end of Deuteronomy, that there was a co-author of some of the sections of what Moses had written. And again, the most obvious example of this is at the end of Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 34, it tells the story of Moses' death and what happened next after Moses died, right? And so it's just highly unlikely that Moses wrote that down, right? He was dead. Um, so in uh, Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 and 6, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher until this day. And the chapter goes on. And it speaks about how the people mourned for Moses after his death, right? So it just seems quite obvious that Moses didn't write this part down because he's dead. Um, Deuteronomy 34 also speaks very highly of Moses, uh, talking about how unique he was. So verse 10 says, And there arose not a prophet since in Israel, like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, right? So whoever's writing this seems to have a knowledge of what happened next and saying nobody has come like Moses since Moses died. We find similarly high language about Moses uh, in Numbers 12, verse 3. This is a verse that maybe some of you have heard before. It's a very interesting verse. Um, Numbers 12, verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That's it's kind of a strange verse, right? Because it's not often a quality of meekness uh, to uh, speak highly of oneself. 
Uh, so it seems not, that it's not likely that Moses wrote that part. Uh, it seems like this is almost a sort of an inspired commentary that God wanted us to know about Moses. And you can even see there, it's, uh, in the King James translation, they, they put this verse in parentheses uh, to kind of set it off uh, from the mainline text. This doesn't mean it's any less inspired, uh, but it just seems like it's in there as a commentary on this story. You know, Numbers 12 is about a conflict uh, that Moses had with the people. Um, and so it, it seems like these are some instances where there was a, an inspired co-author who came along and um, put uh, this verse in here of giving a commentary about Moses, and then especially at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, writing about what happened after Moses. In cases like this, I'm bringing this up uh, because we, we seem to see that God used co-authors as part of how he inspired uh, scripture in these instances. Um, so throughout all of these cases, though, whatever is going on here, whether we're wondering about how Moses got information about Genesis 1 or how Deuteronomy 34 got written, we know with confidence, we have to remember that God's spirit worked through it all to bring about the, the final product that we recognize to be his words. So remember, the, the doctrine of inspiration, as we've talked about, doesn't require a certain method or process, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how inspiration works in every case. So we don't need to be alarmed that the biblical authors cited sources, like Moses does, or that there were co-authors who supplemented their material. Uh, God used those people and processes to give us his words. Um, so in that Answers in Genesis article uh, that I mentioned earlier, and that's linked on the back of the, the handout, uh, the authors there, uh, Bodie Hodge and Terry Mortensen, they conclude their article saying, the biblical doctrine of inspiration of scripture does not require us to conclude that all the books of the Bible were written by God dictating to the human authors. So sometimes that happened, but that didn't always happen. And so then they say, so it is perfectly reasonable to think that Moses wrote Genesis from pre-existing, well-preserved oral tradition and or written documents from the patriarchs. So I take the time to just clarify this and point this out because some people might attack scripture on these grounds and say, well, see, you, you can't trust it. There's different things going on here. Well, we understand that God can use these processes to give us his inspired word. And it's not any reason to, to fear or to be afraid uh, that Deuteronomy 34 exists is not, a, is not a problem to understanding inspiration. God uses those processes. So any, uh, I'm going to pause again before we look at some applications. Any questions or comments up to this point? Well, I'll also say, while you're thinking, we're, as we go along, I'm spending a, an inordinate amount of time on these first five books, on Moses. As we go along, we're not going to spend quite as much time on every author and on every book. Um, but there are some uh, interesting and I think important, helpful things to see here, at, kind of at the ground level, at the foundation of our Bible. Any questions or thoughts? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, so Mike's asking a good question that if uh, some people might object that 
uh, oral tradition might not be reliable. Uh, in, in other instances, might be exaggerated stories. So how can we trust uh, the Bible if they're drawing on oral tradition? And is there an element of faith that's involved here? And so I, the kind of the two ways that I would answer that question is uh, that we don't believe that this is merely a, a human effort, right? So it's not merely that people are trying to pass along this story uh, verbally and just hoping that they, that they get it right. We understand, because Scripture claims this for itself, that God is supernaturally involved in producing Scripture. Um, so we understand that this is not merely a, a human effort or a cultural effort or a societal effort, but this is God's work to speak to us. Um, and he can use means and processes. Sometimes we can put our finger on it and say, oh, okay, here's what happened with Jeremiah. God spoke to Jeremiah, Jeremiah spoke to Baruch, they wrote it down. Sometimes it's that obvious. Sometimes it's not as obvious. Um, and so, and we even have to say that we don't know for sure that there was an oral tradition. Um, it seems likely, uh, but no matter what, what we do know for sure is that God worked through Moses to produce inspired scripture. Scripture claims that for itself. And so, at the end of the day, there is a measure of trust and faith that this is God's word, uh, that this is, uh, what, this is the very words of God to us. Um, and so there is uh, invariably a measure of faith and trust that comes in there. Yeah. Uh, I see Chuck's hand. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So Chuck's question is, <coughs> if uh, these books were uh, unearthed archaeologically, if we found them, and it said, you know, the books of the wars of the Lord written on the top, um, and would it be considered inspired? Um, the short answer that I would give to that, although this is an involved question, it's a very interesting question, the short answer I would give to that is no. I don't think it would be. Uh, and again, we, I mentioned this before, it seems very likely Paul wrote other letters. Um, that between First and Second Corinthians, uh, Paul references other times he's written to them. And <clears throat> we... Um, our understanding of the, the doctrine of Scripture is that it's not everything that was written down by these authors was inspired. Uh, but what was put into these books and claims to be Scripture and recognizes Scripture is what is inspired. So there are also times when other things are quoted. So in Jude, uh, there are some apocryphal books that are quoted, but they're not quoted as Scripture. Uh, they are used as illustrations, and so we don't need to conclude that just because it's quoted means it's inspired. There are also times in Titus 1 when Paul quotes, uh, I think his name is Epiphanes or something like that, he quotes uh, a pagan poet uh, who says that, um, uh, you'll have to help me with the, I the island, there's a Crete, that all the Cretans are liars. <laughs> like Paul quotes um, a pagan poet 
Uh, that doesn't mean that that pagan poet was inspired, you know. But when Paul uses it, he's using it to illustrate a point, and what Paul's saying is inspired. Uh, the same thing happens in Acts 17 when Paul quotes uh, pagans. So, so the short answer is no. Uh, we understand that it's the, the text that is written uh, that uh, is what is inspired, and it's not necessarily the things that they're quoting. So if those things were unearthed, we don't need to recognize those things as scripture. The doctrine of scripture doesn't require that of us. Yeah. I want to try to make a quick application. Uh, it's going to be really quick. And I'm merely going to make this point. That we have a very important pattern set up in the Torah. And this pattern carries itself out down the line all the way through Revelation. And that pattern is basically this. I'm, I'm basically going to give it to you and then we're going to have to conclude. The pattern is basically this. That God's mighty acts go together with his special revelation. Right? God's mighty acts and his special speaking and revelation go together throughout the Bible story. So, you have uh, God delivering his people out of Egypt in the Exodus. You have a great prophet Moses and uh, God, when he delivers his people, he speaks and he explains his actions. And uh, those things also work in the inverse, right? Because Moses says, well, how are they going to know I'm from you? In Exodus 3, he says, how are they going to know that you sent me? And God gives him mighty works to do. He says, throw your staff down. Uh, he gives him miraculous works to authenticate his message. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses says, there's going to be more prophets who come after me. And you're going to know they're a prophet if what they say comes to pass. Uh, and so we see this pattern that gets set up that when God works in miraculous, mighty ways to save his people, he also brings a prophet to explain what he's doing and to tell people how to have a relationship with him through his mighty acts. That's why Joshua keeps writing. Because God continues, just as he read the, led the people through the Red Sea, he leads them through the Jordan River. And then they take the land of Canaan by the mighty hand of God. And God explains all that to them as they're going. And all this, that pattern generally continues throughout Israel's history, all the way until you get to Jesus and the apostles. Uh, and that's why you have that space of 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament, where there's, there's not, um, God is always at work today and in that period, but God wasn't doing mighty acts to deliver his people then in the same way that he was in the Old and New Testament. So you have that 400 years of silence, but then John the Baptist comes, and Jesus comes, and the apostles come, and God is, again, doing mighty works to save, and those miracles authenticate the message and what Christ is doing is explained by the scripture that's written. So that pattern of God's miracles and his special revelation is established here in these first five books. And that pattern keeps going. Um, there are lots of other implications of that pattern, <clears throat> but we're out of time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conclude and uh, pray, and then we'll be done. I'm going to read Psalm 119, uh, verses 17 and 18. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things in your law. Let's pray. God, we ask now that as we uh, gather together to hear your word preached and to sing, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.